Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Welcome to the Fair Perspectives Podcast, the official podcast of the pro-human movement, brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Sheena Mason. Sheena earned her PhD with distinction from Howard University in Washington, D.C. in May of 2021, and is currently a tenure-track assistant professor in African-American literature at SUNY Oneonta. She is also the president and co-founder of the educational firm Theory of Racelessness as well as the author of the forthcoming book, Theory of Racelessness, A Case for Anti-Racism, which presents a skeptical and eliminativist philosophy of race and racism. We discuss Sheena's theory in great depth, including whether race is a biological reality or a social construct, how racism creates race and not the other way around, the conflation of race with culture, class, and ethnicity, Whoopi Goldberg's views on race and the Holocaust, the difficulty of communicating racelessness to the public, common pushbacks to and misconceptions of the theory of racelessness, and whether a raceless future is even possible. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Sheena Mason. Dr. Sheena Mason, thank you for joining us on Fair Perspectives. Thank you for having me. So you are a recent FAIR board advisor uh, inductee. Um, we just announced that, I think, last week. Um, we're, we're recording this in mid-February. So welcome to FAIR. Very excited to have you here. Um, and I think that many people who are familiar with me are probably going to be familiar with you because I never stop talking about you. But why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you do? I always feel unsure about where to start when I get this type of question. So I'm going to do the best I can. Um, <laughs> so I'm Dr. Sheena Mason. I recently graduated from Howard University with a doctorate in English literature. And I specialize in American, African-American and Caribbean literature. I'm a professor, an assistant professor to be exact, at SUNY Oneonta in central New York. And in addition, I founded and am the president for a business called Theory of Racelessness, which is my consulting business. And it centers my signature theory of racelessness, which is a methodological and pedagogical framework for now analyzing race and racism in any society. So we do work. Um, such as trainings and workshops and other speaking events. Also, I have my own podcast and we're really just working to share information, share alternative frameworks and ways of talking about this thing called racism 
that have so far proven to be far more generative for reasons I'm sure we'll probably dig into uh, because we're passionate about helping people free themselves from racism. So when I hear the term race, when I hear the term racelessness, it sounds very, um, I mean, it's intriguing, but it also sounds radical only because it seems like we're all marinating in race talk almost all the time these days. What is your theory of racelessness? Okay, so this to me is another (laughs) heavy question, but with practice, I'm getting better at articulating it because there's a lot of depth to my ideas, um, my research and what I'm doing. So practice makes uh, permanent, if nothing else, (laughs) I'm going to give this a whirl by focusing on what the core tenets are for the theory. So the core tenets for theory of racelessness include Race does not exist in nature. Now, this is something that I think many people can wrap their heads around. A lot of people tend to talk about race as a social construction, but there are people who believe that race is biological, that it's in nature. And my work contends with that assertion. I believe the modern scientists who say that race does not exist in nature. This means that things like phenotype, skin color, how a person looks, ancestry, who your parents are, who your grandparents are, that none of that is something that that we should translate into race. And in that way, we are raceless. The second tenet is race does not exist as a social construction. Now, this is much harder for people to wrap their heads around because people, most people are not saying this. This is not a common assertion. And this speaks to the sort of radicalness of what I am saying. So whereas some people say, okay, race may not be biological, they'll say that it's real in other ways. It manifests itself in ways usually pertaining to how racism operates in especially American society. What I say and what I help people explore and understand is that what people translate and call race or racial They're misnaming other things that are socially constructed, such as ethnicity, which includes culture, or they're misnaming social class or economic class. Additionally, they might be misnaming racism itself, which hides its face as race. And so in recognizing that we're misidentifying these other things that have both nefarious and also positive impact on human society, What I'm calling for in recognizing that we're all raceless and in in aspiring toward racelessness for everyone is the undoing of the nefarious part of this belief in race, which is allowing racism itself to continue to wrap it and package itself with other things that have more positive impacts on us, such as culture and ethnicity. And then uh, the next tenet is that everyone is raceless and racism includes the belief in race as biological or construction and the act of racialization. So we are not technically born race, right? If race is not in nature and it's also not a social construction, it's not something one is born with. And in that way, most of us operate within the machinery of racism because we racialize ourselves and we racialize other people. So that very fact takes away the negative stigma that tends to be attached with being racist or what it is to be identified as having racist ideas, because more often than not, 
most people in the United States are upholding, usually unintentionally, racism because they believe in race. They racialize themselves and then they racialize other people. And then finally, racism is not everywhere and is not the cause for every perceived racial disparity or negative interaction. And as an extension of that, racism can be overcome. So this speaks to the idea that because we we operate within the framework of race ideology, because we racialize ourselves and other people, we are encouraged to see racism even where it's not. And this largely stems from the fact that racism does camouflage itself as race in some instances. So we then are tricked into seeing or imagining racism everywhere. It's this sort of omnipresent entity that we can't get our hands around and that we can't get outside of. But we really are encouraged to see the world that way because we're seeing ourselves through the framework of race. And if we can help people get outside of that, then we can recognize that not everything is racism, though racism does exist, right? That not every negative interaction between people or parties that are racialized differently is a result of racism. And that means we can overcome it because if racism is not everywhere, if it's not omnipresent, we can actually do something about it. But we can't do anything about it if we continue to operate in the same framework that needs to be undone in order to actually undo racism, which is namely race. We have to undo race to undo racism. So there's a lot to to dig into there. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, we've talked before, I've been on your podcast. And so we're very much aligned on this sort of thing. But there are a few things that I noticed while watching uh, some of your other conversations with other people. And some of the stuff that you just said now. So I want to I want to zero in on this social construction thing, because my understanding is the thing that people say, or at least pay lip service to, is that race is a social construct. And by that, they mean that it is an idea that has been created and then kind of put upon society. Right. Or that we put up with we actively put upon it, put upon society. Um, in the same way as something like nationality or or even like citizenship, right? We've created these these constructs, these these imaginary borders, and then we act upon them, and they do have an effect on our daily kind of interaction with one another, right? And so I I totally see that. I can see how race is a, is similarly constructed the same way that something like ethnicity is or something like citizenship is, right? But you're going one step further and you're saying that race is not even a social construct. So let's dig in a little bit more. Tell me, tell me what's wrong about what I just said. <laughs> what am I not getting? Yes. So this is part of my work that people do get hung upon, as you've noticed, um, until they get enough evidence and then more often than not, they end up being persuaded. So one of my favorite quotes by Toni Morrison is something to the effect of race does not exist, not anthropologically, not biologically. Racism is a construction. It has its benefits. It has its down, it has its downsides. So what she does in that quote is what a lot of people do without necessarily recognizing it, which she's making an analogy between race and racism in some ways, because she's using them almost interchangeably. Mm -hmm. She says race doesn't exist in any 
way. If you say anthropologically to me, that that rings uh, like as a construction and then biologically, meaning it doesn't exist in nature, but racism exists and is a construction. So that to me is a fundamental difference, because if we can recognize based on the genealogy of the concept of race in the first place and how racism has operated and racism has created and required our continued belief in race, either in nature and then as a social construction, then we can see that racism exists. Racism is a social construction, which to me means that we stop misidentifying the problem, the root of the problem, which is namely racism and our belief in the fiction of race. And that to me also speaks to the sort of outcome of not misidentifying what gets conflated with race itself. So the average person will throw everything under the sun seemingly into their conception of race, right? They'll include ethnicity, they'll include culture, which, you know, if it's unclear for, for viewers, is hugely problematic because there are a handful of designated races, but there are many, 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 many ethnicities, right? So it doesn't transpose, which means there are many, 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 many cultures that we shouldn't be racializing culture. Um, and so in conflating ethnicity and culture with race, that means race doesn't exist, but those things do, and it's not the same thing. And then similarly, there are ways in which, because racism also camouflages itself as race, when we talk about race and convince ourselves that we're talking about racism, that's part of my evidence for how racism hides its face as race. Because even how we talk about racism through the language of race, and then we use evidence or instances of racism to prove the existence of race, it's like, so clear to me that mm. race doesn't exist without the racism that preceded it and, and necessitated it. Mm. And so, again, I think on a fundamental level, my biggest contention with calling race a social construction is the misdirection of the discourse that then results in a continued upholding of the machinery of racism. And there are some constructionists that avoid that pitfall. For example, my mentor in the philosophy department at Howard University, he is a racial constructionist and he's also an eliminativist. So he still works within the framework, but he advocates for the elimination of the thing. So it's possible, but most mm. constructionists are not knowledgeable or informed enough about the genealogy of race and what's underlying all of that to avoid reifying the same thing. And that's why I tried to help people into skepticism about the existence of race in the first place, because then we get to eliminativism faster. Your point is that the actual social construct is racism, which, which by necessity requires one to believe in race. So the kind of People have it sort of backwards is what you're saying, mm -hmm. is that people think there is such a thing as race. And then there are people who, who take this reality of race and then act upon it in ways that we call racism. But your, your conception is that the belief in race in the first place is racism. 
and that it because it doesn't actually exist in nature, because there's no actual you know biological basis for it, just buying into the game of accepting the categories is already kind of setting foot on the path of racism itself. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair summation. Um, I'll have to take notes myself so I can say it as succinctly as you just did. But <laughs> <laughs> it's deep. It's it's really deep, especially mm-hmm. the the skepticism of the, the existence or the reality of racism, because there are other racial skeptics. So there's a for folks who don't know, there are philosophies of race, six categories and each of us holds two philosophies of race, even without having the language to say, this is my philosophy of race. So the philosophy we're talking about here are, include naturalism, constructionism, and skepticism, which is where I sit. And skepticism is understandably difficult for pe- most people to wrap their heads around because from very early ages, we're really taught to buy into the existence of race. and in response to racism, people have taken the category of race and used it, tried to use it as a way to resist racism itself, which is an ironic part. And it's because of that, largely because of that continued buying into the existence of it or the utility of it, the the benefits of it that keep us in this quagmire of at once trying to get rid of racism or at least lessen it, right? Decrease it, but then also still operating within the framework that racism gave us, which is race. I should say more specifically, which is the belief in race. I I do think one, thinking about what you're saying now is I'm trying to process it because I'm pretty much hearing it for the first time is I think the global context actually reinforces or lends credence to what you're saying. Because if I think about this idea of buying into the existence of race, having come or grown up in a, in a completely different country, the concept of race is very, very different. I, I don't think Americans realize how truly race obsessed this culture is. And the fact that you can transpose someone in different cultural contexts to come away with totally different ideas and constructions about race does lend credence to your ideas here. Have you uh, kind of thought about, about the global context of race and how that affects what you're saying? Yeah, that's a great point, Melissa. So part of the work I do is to help people relativize how they think about race ism, which I spell racism with the word race into it, which is why I tend to pause because that gets completely lost when you say it out loud. (laughs) (laughs) But part of the work I do is to help people relativize it because there are philosophers who actually study does race, capital R race, does that travel? And in the American context, the tendency is to to think along the lines of you know, what this thing called white supremacy, anti-blackness, it's everywhere. It's absolutely global. It's pernicious. It's, it's in the fabric of the entire world. But when we step outside of the framework of the United States or when people immigrate from other countries, as you're saying, and they get into the American framework of race and race ideology, there is a dissonance there. I hear from people Um, In Canada and Ireland and England and Nigeria 
increasingly in the United States from around the world, either their parents or they themselves. And they're like, what is this thing? I didn't sign up for this. I don't, <laughs> I don't like it. I see the irony of it. I see clearly what's happening. But then I also think of places like France, which a lot of Americans think the French are super racist. I've, I've had people even say that they're the most racist, but it's, but it, it's kind of speaks to the debacle that Whoopi Goldberg has been going through because on the one hand, you have Americans like James Baldwin and Toni Morrison herself fleeing to places like Paris, France, because they're tired of the, the race ideology in America, right? And they're trying to escape it. And they say, as Americans abroad, they get the privileges of being American. They're not hyphenated American. They're not black. They're American. Now, there's something to be said about the fact that you can come from Ethiopia and immigrate to Paris, France, and you can experience discrimination. And then the question becomes, is that racism? And this is something I work through with students on a regular basis is, is it racism? Like, let's let's ask the question instead of presuming, because if it's more complicated, if it's more about xenophobia, right, if it's more if it's if it's some kind of prejudice, but it's not racism, I think we would do well to consider what it is and, and not misname it, because, again, it makes if we call everything racism, it does make the problem more insurmountable. And then also the Caribbean is a great place to explore these kinds of ideas and concepts because the history is not completely dissimilar from the United States. And you have a lot of Caribbeanists thinking about this thing called race in definitely more expansive ways than we tend to in the in the U.S. And then the people coming from the continent of Africa itself. This is ironic for me because people will presume that Africa is the motherland of Black people, right? That's how Americans tend to conceive of it. But then when you speak to people from the continent, unless they're from South Africa or select few other places, their conception of what Blackness is or what whiteness is, what race is, is often going to be very different. And they, and many of them will tell you that they perceive themselves as raceless. But you tell that to somebody in the U.S., they'll, they'll default to saying, well, that's because they come from a predominantly black country, but I'm like, let's not miss the point, right? Like the point is that they don't conceive of themselves in this way, in this framework, whether there, there are other races in their society or not. And we can learn from that. We can learn from that. And what would that look like in a place where there are these so-called different races? Yeah, there's that. There's that thing again of smuggling in the concept as a given and then moving forward, right? So it's like, yeah, they're saying, well, it's because they live in a predominantly black culture or a predominantly black area, geographic area. There aren't white people to terrorize them. And that's why they don't think this way. But they've smuggled in the concepts. They've, they've put the framework on top of something where it doesn't necessarily even exist and and it it kind of echoes again this whole thing that the whole point is that it's an idea that when once you shift your lenses to look at things that way you can't not see it that way even if the context makes no sense um in a context like that but i actually wanted to ask you about the Whoopi goldberg thing because to me it struck me as a really interesting case of conflicting frameworks right so you know for the three people who don't know what happened 
Whoopi Goldberg made some comments about the Holocaust. And basically what she said was that the, what was going on between uh, Germans and the Jewish people wasn't about race because from her point of view, those are all white people. So it can't be, you know, white on white crime, so to speak, isn't racism, right? Like you can't be racist against your own race. And that's how she was conceiving of it. And of course, you know, we know that the Jews were considered an inferior race of people by the Germans. And that was, you know, at the very least, a justification for their behavior or for their animus, right? At least a, um, an, ostensible, an ostensible justification for it, right? That's, what, that's at least what they said, whether they believed it or not. And that kind of speaks to the issue, right? Because from, I can totally see Whoopi Goldberg's perspective. I can understand the math she's doing. Right. From her context, she's looking at a bunch of people who, to her, all look white. And so the conflict between them cannot be put into the race framework that she understands from her kind of, you know, growing up here in America context of like, it has to be between people who don't look the same. Right. Um, so I'm curious, what, what is it that, what do you think about that whole kind of conflict of frameworks? Because people got very upset, but. And, you know, the criticism is fine, I think, but, but it, it was, it's a little strange because it seemed like people couldn't even understand why she would think that way. Yeah. So part of my research too, and my effort to really, and I mean, really understand this thing called race uh, on a global scale across time periods has included and necessitated my understanding of the meaning of race since its inception in the English language. And as a result of that, I've done extensive study in early modern Europe. And one thing that I talk about on my podcast is this history of the word race, meaning something different in the European context. Before it gets to what would become the United States, race had more to do with nationality. It had to do with lineage, family, class. It was a way for early modern Europeans to create a hierarchy that was called race. And I kind of view the what happened in, in Nazi Germany as doing that similar work and operating within the old framework of what race is. And in the sense that we could think about racism as being global, a lot of the ways in which people are racialized, there are some people who would argue that racialization when not in the American context, is a discrimination against another group of people based on ethnicity, which includes culture, religion, and all these other things. So in that way, some people would argue that racism is worldwide because human society, we have found constant pernicious ways to oppress and hierarchize. But if you don't, if you're not taught that history, if you're not taught about the, the different meanings of the word race, and the, if you're not taught to look at the framework of race ideology with its uniqueness and how it operates in different countries and in different time periods, then you do fall into the trap that Whoopi Goldberg fell into, which is viewing it as white on white crime, which feels icky even saying it. Um, mm -hmm. And, and, I think that the reaction to her error um, and, and ignorance in the sense that she just didn't know 
I think the reaction is super ironic and interesting and something I've been playing very paying very close attention to because I would argue that the vast majority of people would have thought the same thing until Whoopi was kind of this became the scapegoat and and because people identify her as woke or left leaning and all this other stuff, which which then means they associate cancel culture and all the things with her, that that resulted in a backlash that might have otherwise been different if somebody else was saying it and making the same error. Um, so I've been paying attention to to the backlash and kind of shaking my head, you know, <laughs> constantly because the irony isn't lost on me. And I think it's unfortunate that she's being used as a, as a sort of example. But how she expressed her, how she thinks about racism, I would say that's you get that in primary school. You know, that's how that's how we're taught. Um, you get that through media. I mean, you get that in all the ways at, at virtually every level. And I feel like it's it's less common for people to view that as having to do with race, period. Hmm. Do you think you're, you know, the conception here kind of differs if you are kind of a multicultural society in the way the United States is or if you are a more homogenous society, right? Because your, your third tenet was that everyone is raceless. And I, I, I can see your point about like, look, if you're like from the subcontinent of India, I don't know if you have a conception of Indian, right? Um, because what's stronger there is actually the, the case system, the caste system, right? You got your, they already sort themselves into these hierarchies that are, that have a really strong root on society. And, and, and if you look at, say, the Arab world, you know, they divide themselves in another way. It's um, Sunnis and Shias and Ahmadis and Sufis and different kinds of Muslims. And, and so it seems like there is a human need to sort. It just so happens that here in the West, especially in the United States, we're using very crude racial categories that, that you know, seem to be very easily um, actually falsified. Right. And now we're doubling down on concepts like something that is very new that I don't think I, I, I recall experiencing or, or hearing very often when I was in college. And this was like um, before 2010, the word whiteness. And now it's everywhere. And, you know, to the point that we are debating about what it means to use different colored emojis, you know, like NPR writing that article about, about the, the thumbs up emoji and <laughs> what it means when you choose a white one versus a black one versus a yellow one. Um, and, and that, that concept seems very pervasive now. And I, I, I don't really understand how we got here, this, this concept of, of whiteness and then associating characteristics with that, which seems actually very pernicious to me. Yeah. So part of what I talk about in my forthcoming book is this constant reconstructing of the concept of race across generations, across centuries, and specifically how the reconstructing of, or the reconstruction of blackness and whiteness have looked at different times. Part of what happens starting around 1660 and what would become the United States is, okay, we already have slavery, chattel slavery in place, so we have the caste system in place. So we're going to adopt this concept of race, which we've taken over from Europe. And because the whole 
MO <laughs> of the concept of race is to, to maintain a caste system. It's perfect. We're going to take it. We're going to start tying white and black and, and of color. We're going to start tying this language to race. And, and the hope is this is going to justify what we're doing in terms of having owning human beings, right? Because the blackness gets codified as being a, a property, being an animal, being a beast, being unhuman, not human. And in that way, whiteness starts to get codified as being free, which I take to mean free, free in several different ways, but importantly, free from the effects of racism, that race ideology is being constructed and imagined to try to justify. And in that way, this language and, th and these characteristics of whiteness and blackness and being of color and what it means and one's legal status and protection under American citizenship when America is formed, all of that is maintained across time periods so that even during abolition, you have people like Frederick Douglass, who is they're raised in the same race ideological system. So they come to conceive of themselves as white or black or of color. But they're trying to reconstruct what those things mean, specifically blackness. They're trying to write their humanity into it. So that's why you have assertions from formerly enslaved people or escaped enslaved people. You have assertions of humanity. That's that that's abolition in a nutshell. Right. That black people are not beasts. We are human. And, and because there's no other context in which early citizens are operating within, they're only operating within the framework of race ideology because that's what they've inherited, then it becomes more and more ingrained in society. And whiteness becomes continuously conflated with this concept of racistness because it's conflated with this idea of being free from racism and the perniciousness of it, which is how you then, you know, in more modern times have people arguing that only white people can be racist in the United States. It's because whiteness cont continues to be conflated with being free from racism, the ne negative effects of it. And it's a sort of bamboozled moment <laughs> because we know that early politicians saw an opportunity to align people based on this belief in race. And so you had people actually overthrowing governments if a racialized black person was put into power because they wanted their people to be put into power, their people as in racialized white people to be put in power. So what do they do? They, they do this whole media propaganda of this black beast who's raping white women. And they put that messaging out and then they have lynch mobs lynching racialized black people. And this, and the story is you have to fear racialized black people they are not your friend they're your enemies they're coming after your women you know they're going to mess up your bloodlines because then the bloodline isn't going to be pure because there's this nonsensical idea that whiteness is is a pure race um which sounds a lot like hitler's ideology and so you get this this strategic effort to bolster the belief in race so that a very small subset of American society can actually benefit from it. 
But the story that we're told is that all racialized white people benefit from it, right? You've heard of white privilege. And then the story you're told is that all racialized Black people are negatively impacted by racism, which hasn't always been the case, because at the same time, there are free people of color. At the same time that there, there are people who are enslaved. And so the it's not just this, this will to categorize and try to make things neat. It's also this will to to maintain the status quo. And in that way, the, the maintaining the status quo becomes a sleight of hand because if racelessness, if freedom from racism continues to be kept and locked into this thing called whiteness, then that means that the Derek Bells of the world are 100% correct. We will never be free from racism. It's inescapable. Because it's because we can't all be white, even though we might get accused of trying to be white, right? Um, and so it <laughs> it's this it's this really vicious there. quagmire. And so that's part of my work too, is to help people really better understand the categories and the constant reconstruction efforts and why certain characteristics get conflated with certain race categories, and then helping people stop doing that right like if we're sincere about transcending racism then more people have to know this stuff and more people have to make a different decision about how they see themselves because we have power and agency we can racialize we can racialize or not racialize ourselves as well as hopefully stop racializing other people and there are plenty of ways we'll still categorize each other right but i think the more positive way in the united states is to look at our shared americanness and our shared humanity, as opposed to dividing America into these believed in racial groups, because it has never served all of America. It's only ever served a very small percentage. And we're finding that out. I've been knowing this, and there are plenty of other people who've been knowing this, but I think increasingly people are are finally recognizing that and things are coming to a head. And I feel like now is the time for us to make a different path forward. Hmm. I'm curious, this is a good spot actually to, to back up for a little bit because I'm always really interested in finding out how people come to believe what they currently believe. What are the shifts that, that happened? Um, you know, and I know for, you know, we're very much aligned on this kind of anti-race sort of thinking. And, you know, for my part, it's been a, a slow progression, but it's, it was, it's very analogous for me in my case to my, my way out of religious belief. It was very similar, right? I was told certain things and I believe them on the authority of the people who told me. And then I start asking questions and I start listening to other people and I start kind of discovering things. And slowly I ease my way out of believing that thing that was told to me. And race was the same. I just kind of accepted the categories as they were. I, I'm looking at the world around me. It is what it is. And my understanding was, you know, racism is bad because you shouldn't te- treat people of other races differently just because of their race, right? Like that was the concept. Um, but I'm curious, how, how did you get here? How did you get to this whole point? And then from there decide, not only am I going to abandon these ideas, but I'm going to make it my mission to help other people abandon Ooh. these ideas. This question gives me chills. So, um, yeah, I I had a very (laughs) traumatic childhood. Um, I was adopted. My biological parents 
two of my biological siblings died under suspicious circumstances as infants in their care. And then my two biological sisters were found to be severely abused and neglected. So when I was born a few years later as the baby in the family, I was immediately taken away by New York State and and put into foster care. By the time I turned one, I was adopted. But the paradox of it was that my adoptive mother severely abused and neglected me. And as a result of that, I turned to school and I turned particularly to reading and literature, which I attribute to really having saved my life. Because whatever I was going through at any period of my life, I always believed that there was more to the world than what I was experiencing, because that's what the literature showed me. And so in my in my early years, I can I can recall some moments that were very traumatic, not pleasant experiences when I learned my race. Right. And one of the first moments was my adoptive mother who wanted to put a wedge between me and my adoptive father's family. I was getting of the age where they were wanting me to come and and spend weekends with them. Like my aunts wanted to spend time with me. And um, I was old enough where I was being allowed to do that by myself. And I think my adoptive mother saw that as, as the opportunity for me to share what was happening behind closed doors, right? So to put a wedge in between that, she told me they don't like you and they don't like me because we're black. She would have used a different word for herself because she immigrated from Panama. But the, 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 the point was they are racialized white people. We're not. And they don't like you. They don't like us because of this. And as a result of that, when I'm again, about eight years old, I started you know, looking, <laughs> I, I have this memory etched in my mind of like looking down at my arms and looking at my skin color and, and really trying to grasp what was being communicated with me. And I told myself the story of I'm the cause for them not liking me. Right. Even though I actually knew it wasn't true. I knew she was being her, <laughs> which is evil. Um, fast forward a couple of years, I'm on the middle school bus which was also shared with high schoolers and a new girl in town at the high school started taunting me and calling me pubic hair. And one day she grabbed me by my hair and she assaulted me. The bus driver never did anything about this. Every single time she was yelling pubic hair. And when she assaulted me, I looked to the front of the bus at the bus driver to see where they looking and were they going to do anything, which they didn't. And when I got off the bus after the day she assaulted me, she had to stay on the bus to go to the high school. And I heard the sound of a person hawking the biggest loogie you could imagine. And then I felt the spit land in my hair. She spit on me. I will say after that point, I think she must have gotten suspended because she was behaviorally having challenges at the high school. And I didn't see her after that point. But that was another moment where I internalized somebody else's bad behavior was because of something about me, right? In this instance, it's my hair texture. And, uh, you know, it, it, it kept happening. My, my adoptive brother was shot at by an alleged skinhead. We grew up in a trailer park. My family was very poor. And my brother came home screaming bloody murder one day. He was just out in the neighborhood playing with a, a neighbor 
and he came home and we heard that so-and-so down the street had shot at them like an actual gun and to the credit of the trailer park, I guess, or the, or the kid's parents, they sent him to Tennessee to live with his dad or something like that. He was essentially kicked out of the, the trailer park, but that happened. And I was only 10 or so. And that was another moment of like how my brother and I are, we're causing other people to do the stuff to us. And I will say once I got to be um, 16 years old, I moved out of that household. I actually chose homelessness over staying there. And again, I held on to the belief that there was more to what I to the world than what I was experiencing. But I also developed a very fierce passion for helping people, particularly youth and particularly youth struggling to overcome any any semblance of what I had overcome in my life. And somehow my brain connected that, you know, I felt like it was my God's given purpose. It connected that to studying African-American literature. Because African-American literature has historically been defined as always having to do with race and racism. And I connected with that struggle, not just because of the explicit racism that I experienced, but also because of the tremendous adversity that I had experienced and overcome. So I felt very gravitated toward the pull of the literature where people are fighting against racism and in beautiful ways, right? Like it's not all, it's not all bad. Like there's, it's, it's paradoxical to say the least. Um, but because that was where my focus was it, in, and that's how I thought I was going to be a positive force in the world. I started really looking at how race gets essentialized and how racism operated in our society. And I've been studying that now for well over a decade. I graduated, um, Melissa said earlier, she, she graduated before 2010. So my undergrad, I graduated in 2007. Um, and so for that time, plus four years, you know, I've been studying race in, on a global scale and then particularly in the U.S. And I never imagined that I would get to the place where I was disconnecting myself and advocating for the undoing of the belief in race. Because I saw myself within the framework. I identified as a Black woman proudly. I attributed all of my positive characteristics to my Blackness. I felt like everything I ever went through and everything I ever overcame was because I'm a Black woman. That's the story that I was telling myself, right? And in that way, I was definitely at times probably a naturalist. Then I became a constructionist, but I was always a reconstructionist. And then as I, you know, go through life, I did teach for America. I've lived in like six different states. I worked in corporate America. I worked for nonprofits. I've, I've done everything. I get to my doctoral program. I'm still studying race. And all of a sudden, it was like something clicked in my brain. I, I felt like the literature is showing me something that I was recognizing even a decade ago, but I wasn't able to really put it into language. And that is that to undo racism, we have to undo race, which is the opposite of how the literature is taught. Right. And in that way, I struggled. <laughs> I struggled emotionally to grapple with my own ideas. Because again, I put everything I felt positive about myself into that way of seeing myself. 
which is a struggle that you see people going through now. This is a hard thing. It's not hard for many racialized white people, but it's very hard for racialized black people to get to the other side of this because there is the emotional pull to it. And that's part of how we thrive and survive and overcome in many ways. It's part of our belief in race and our repackaging of it to be everything positive that we love about ourselves. And so I, you know, I spent time um, crying in my mentor's office and saying, I don't want to be not black. <laughs> and bless her heart. She was so patient with me. She was like, you don't have to be the martyr. You just have to keep going down this path. Keep researching, keep thinking, keep writing, publish, amplify your voice. Don't hide your ideas or anything like that. But, you know, if you're not ready to, to let it go, then that's OK. Like, you don't have to just jump into it. Right. Just but you do. I feel like she said you do have a duty to share your knowledge. And so I did. And it wasn't until I got to the point of skepticism that I finally unlocked something for myself, which is why I'm passionate about sharing what skepticism is and what it's not, but what some people misconstrue. And that that shift for me was recognizing that what people are seeing as race and translating into race, they're misnaming these other things. So it's really a conceptual error. And the nefarious part about that is that racism continues to operate because we're still clinging to the, the idea of race, right? And once I saw that, I recognized that letting go of race and recognizing my racelessness didn't erase anything about myself. If anything, it just amplified who I am, how I am, my understanding of who I am and how I am. And that's the benefit of doing it this way. And that's a benefit that my students, my clients constantly write testimonials and tell me about. And that's the power of doing this differently because we haven't gotten it right yet. We've, we're actually doing the same thing that we've been doing for a long time, which is trying to reconstruct it and we can't. Um, Sheena, I, I, I'm, I'm just wondering how like tactically I, I, I buy your premise, but tactically, you know, apart from encouraging, you know, the whole world to, to, to mix. And, and so everybody ends up looking like angel kind of like the beige world. <laughs> um, how how do we <laughs> tactically mechanistically get there? Because because it just seems like it, it's so entrenched. Because when I look, you know, when you look at people, there are these like superficial differences, but they seem to to exist in these broad categories. I remember in anthropology, uh, which is a very outdated model now, they used to to say that there were only three kinds of human beings, and they categorized it into Mongoloids, Caucasoids, and I believe Negroids. Those were the three categories of people, and and that every other person on earth could be, you know, our iterations or mixes of these three main groups. But, but with this idea of, of, of race, especially in America also, to be, to be so entrenched, right? Like the idea of, I didn't know I was Asian until I got here. Because that, like growing up in Singapore, that wasn't a category. Like it's not, that wasn't a race. <laughs> so there was ethnicity. There were Chinese, Indian, Malays, you know, um, and then Eurasians or other sucks to be an other actually kind of thing of it because it's like kind of a weird category like you don't fit into anything but um there wasn't this idea of being asian and so when i got here and and it was that was the category assigned and people seem to cling on to that you know pretty heavily and now you know you have campaigns like stop asian hate or something and it's it's like it's still a new concept to me because it it didn't exist before 
but it's very entrenched. So mechanistically, apart from the world just, you know, dating more and mixing more and, and having more beige kids, how, how do we really transcend it? Is it really through ideas and convincing people? Because people have a hard time letting go of this. This is probably the most asked question <laughs> that I um, get. And understandably so. I look at it this way. When slavery was a thing in the United States, people thought the same way about about uh, the possibility or probability of slavery ending. It lasted a very long time. There was a strategy for how to keep the machinery of it going. To to make it such that people perceived it as a necessary part of the fabric of, you know, American society. And yet. Slavery was abolished, right? Thankfully, slavery was abolished. People are compelled by the evidence if they're presented with the evidence in a way that doesn't pigeonhole them into racist or racialist categories or ways of seeing themselves and other people. People are compelled by the evidence. And the biggest obstacle so far has been that there have been virtually no one, there's been virtually no one, no program, no curriculum, nothing to, to show people a different way. You know, when I talk about philosophies of race, almost no one has heard of that being a thing, right? And it's an entire field under the category of philosophy. I've never heard. In of fact, Right. In fact, I didn't I hadn't heard of it until I was introduced to Jacoby Carter, who's my mentor, the chair of the philosophy department at Howard. I was introduced to him because I was studying Elaine Locke and he's an Elaine Locke scholar. And it just so happened to be a coincidence that he also is a philosophy of race scholar. And he got to teach me everything he knows. And he's a constructionist eliminativist. And he was like, you're not crazy, because at that time, Based on what he taught me, I identified as a constructionist eliminativist. But if if I hadn't met Dr. Carter, I don't know how much longer it would have taken me to fully get there. Right. And very seldom are people able to get outside of this quagmire, outside of the, the fishbowl, if you will, is a good metaphor, because they aren't given the tools and the resources to get outside the fishbowl. And if you're born in the fishbowl, it's really hard it's really hard to get outside of the fishbowl. And in fact, you think because you're fish and you need water to live, you don't want to leave the water. You don't want to leave the fishbowl because you're going to die, right? But in this magical world that I'm imagining, we come to recognize that the fishbowl is really a trap. We don't need the water to live, right? We, in fact, the water is killing us. It's actually toxic water. It's poison, right? If we just get outside the fishbowl, then we get into the ocean and then we can all thrive. Um, you know what? I need to remember this metaphor because it's brilliant <laughs> and I'm using it. <laughs> so that, but, but that's, that's perhaps my naivety, perhaps my ever optimistic spirit which is really ironic. People are like, they hear some of my life story and they're like, how are you the same person? I don't really have an answer for it, but I'm glad for it. I'm not hardened or jaded or bitter or cynical. I believe in us. I believe in humans. I believe that when we're given an alternative and we're, we're going to be compelled by it, that, that we change our minds, literally, you know, physically the, the neurons and stuff change and, 
we change our minds and that the society will come to reflect the beliefs of its citizens just as they did when slavery was a thing and then when it wasn't a thing. Just as 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 it did before the Civil Rights Act, you know, it, it, time and time again, humans have changed what has seemed to be unchangeable. And there's always some kind of catalyst that generally leads people to it. And it's it's been a slow march of progress, one could say. Um, but I believe that we can do that. And so part of my strategy is reverse engineering how the ideas get out in the first place, right? When you're talking about media, you're talking about education, you're talking about our young people and what our young people are being taught. We just need to reverse engineer that. And then if enough people catch wind of it, if enough people amplify the, the efforts and the work, if enough people are educated and, and suddenly they know better and they know a different way that gives people what they want, which is to acknowledge the existence of racism and the history of it and to also not continue it, that gives almost everybody what they want. I say almost because there are some people who want racism to continue, but that's a different story then people are going to do it. But because there haven't really been alternatives that have gotten enough limelight and attention, we stay in the quagmire. I'm committed to doing everything I can and my human power, my friends would say superhuman power, to share information. And for me, it's not about convincing, but people feel convinced when they learn from me, which I take, I'll take it. <laughs> it's really educating people. And if we can do that, then we can get to the other side of this. And it's not going to be paradise. There are still going to be other hierarchies that are pernicious. But I believe in us and I believe in our capacity to do differently once we know that there's a different way to do this thing. I just believe in that. I think it's complicated. It's it's probably even more complicated than how complicated you just uh, explained it is. Because I'm reminded of of that Machiavelli quote, where he says that uh, the innovator has for enemies all those who have done well under the old conditions, and lukewarm defenders in those who may do well under the new one. Right. So it's kind of like it's a double sided problem. It's the problem of anyone who is incentivized to keep things the way they are, and in this case, it's not even just people who are racist and who benefit from racism in that way. It's also people who benefit from calling out racism and, um, you know, kind of perpetuating that sort of thing of seeing it everywhere because it's kind of, you, it be, has become your job to sniff it out. And so you just become a, a more and more sensitive sort of detector of that sort of stuff and it becomes your livelihood and it's your whole sense of identity and your whole sense of being. So there's that. But there's also another thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is like the language we use in communicating this stuff. So much of this is, is stuck in language, right? So, so there's on the one hand, the language we use to understand and communicate these ideas. Um, and I'll ask you about that first. Uh, so, you know, we've both read the book Racecraft by Barbara and Karen Fields. I know we're both totally down with that. I love, I love those two women and I love that book, but, um, I had a hard time reading it, right? It was difficult for me to, to read. I had to reread the first chapter three times just to kind of get myself into the, the language of it. 
And then the rest of the book was similarly challenging for me. And, you know, I'm, I'm a fairly, you know, smart guy. I can pick up this sort of stuff. I'm not, you know, a, an academic or anything like that, but I feel like I can generally grasp things, right? Like I've read, you know, physics books and I, I feel like I can follow it. So, so it's not like a necessarily a personal limitation, but I think that it's just overly academic language. I think that, that there's a, a little bit of a barrier there. And I kind of hesitate when I recommend the book to people, not because I think people are dumb, but because it is a difficult read, right? And I feel like they might just stop there and they might miss out on on the the actual message, which is so valuable, right? So I'm curious about your approach because, you know, you mentioned it a few times throughout our conversation so far, you know, the philosophies of race and, you know, things like constructivism and eliminativism and, you know, skepticism and all these things that are going to sound foreign to people. And so how, how do you get past that barrier and try to communicate this stuff to somebody who's just like, look, I'm just working a regular job. I can't handle this stuff. I'm not all up in the books and things. I don't do that, right? Like, I just want to go to work. I want to come home. I want to watch TV, right? And I want to deal with racism, like, because it's, it's affecting my life. And now you're coming in and you're saying, I've got a solution for you, but, you know, here's all this philosophy, right? Like, that's not necessarily going to work as easily. So I'm curious how, how you're going to approach Well, that. people think that philosophy is this highfalutin thing, but uh, every value or belief we have is, is philosophy. So there's that. And just because I call mm-hmm. out the fact that it's philosophy and that it's a field um, needn't mean that it's harder or more difficult for people to grapple with just because it's philosophy. This isn't Plato or Aristotle. We're talking about stuff that we're all confronted with on a regular basis, largely because of the media, you know, with the Whoopi Goldberg thing, Mm -hmm. with the NPR piece, which that was the most um, tagged tweet I've ever had in my short time on Twitter, Melissa. People were like, how did Dr. Mason at racistness? Um, And so it's in our face literally all the time. So even though the, the proper names for the philosophies are going to be new and sound foreign because that we're not taught it anywhere, unless you just happen to be a philosopher of race. um, That doesn't, to my mind, that doesn't signify that there is a barrier because just because something is new doesn't, I don't know, to my mind, that doesn't mean it's going to be, it's hard for people to gra- grapple really, because at the end of the day, the, the terminology mm-hmm. to identify the thing is new, but the, the thing that people believe that's there, regardless of the fact that they don't have the language mm-hmm. to say, Oh, I'm a reconstructionist or, or I'm an eliminativist. You don't have that right. language, but every one of us has philosophies of race, make no mistake about it. And I also think that this takes an, or, an inordinate amount of patience. You, I don't know if it was you, Angel, or someone recently was asking me, like, how do you do it? How do you <laughs> basically to say the same thing over and over in some ways, in some instances, right? Like when, when people come and they say, oh, race is biological, right? And then I got to explain. I actually don't have to explain. It's just often I take the time to explain. Um, and it helps that I'm 100% passionate about this, that I approach, approach it with sincerity and a, and a sort of lightheartedness that 
I think is hard to come by because it's such a heavy uh, topic, racism. And that's also because I've stopped internalizing the thing. So earlier when I was talking about my childhood compared to where I am now intellectually and emotionally, one of the benefits of the theory of racistness and doing this thing differently comes down to the fact that one stops telling themselves that they are the cause of somebody else's bad behavior. Right. So let's get that. Let's get that piece straight. And the more people that can come to the other side of the, the, the challenges that come with learning anything that's new, because literally anything that's new, I feel like is challenging for people. Uh, it results in the type of growth that will reverberate it exponentially. I find that my greatest growth spurts mm. in, in any type of, you know, sort of metaphorical way have come from me having more questions than answers and being willing to ask the questions <laughs> of myself, of other people, you know, um, and really holding my feet to the fire. And I'm, I'm fortunate enough to work with people on an everyday basis. I'm talking about everyone from every walk of life and various countries who seem to understand it just fine. And so sometimes when people ask me about, you know, the sort of highfalutin language or the academic speak, it's sort of mind boggling in a way because I'm like, well, I must be doing an okay job because more people than not are understanding it. And at minimum, they're staying around long enough to really understand it and to really grapple with it. And which also it inspires mm. my continued hope in humanity. You know, it's because I, I work with people who aren't just throwing their hands up in the air and saying, ah, this is hard. Ooh. They're staying mm. and they're thinking and, you know, that gives me hope, too, because they're staying and they're thinking. And maybe they think I'm crazy at first. I've had a student tell me that she thought I was crazy at first. But then the more she listened, the more she learned and the more she realized I was just spitting facts is what she said. Um, and that happens to me more often than <laughs> than not. And I, I think we're tricking ourselves. Mm. Part of the machinery of racism is tricking ourselves that we can't get enough people to this other side of the thing. Right. And so then it kind of, again, informs how we're going to try to solve the problem where I'm just all in. Like I jumped into the pool. I'm not a fan of deep water. I almost drowned when I was 16. That might have something to do with it. Uh, but I jumped, I'm all in, <laughs> I'm all in. And it takes mm. that kind of audacity and boldness for any thing to take, to take root. And we've seen that with the greats, you know, like Gandhi mm. or Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King Jr. They were all in and they did, they had no reason to believe that this society was going to change in the ways that they were imagining. And yet because of their efforts, the society's changed not to perfection, but they changed. So that's, that's what I'm going for. <laughs> Gina, I think, I think instinctually though, what's interesting, I, it just dawned on me because instinctually, I think people actually get what you're saying because when it comes to sex, there is an interesting angle of, of activism that's very popular right now that to get rid of sexism, we have to get rid of sex or the idea of, of differences. And, and if, if they can apply it to that, right, to, to, all right, let's ignore the differences, 
men and women, masculine, feminine, these are just fluid categories. If they can, if they can approach it that way, it seems like, why can't they approach it here? You know? Yeah. I, I, I mean, think... sex is different. I know because it yeah, is actually a biological you. thing. It's a hundred percent. But I'm just saying like, there is that instinct to, to, to believe that if we get rid of, of, of um, sex differences, then we will just get rid of sexism. There, yeah, there is a real belief in that. And you're right, Melissa, because there's, there's actually, you know, you can, you can watch people doing the analogous thing to what Sheena does where, you know, Sheena will say people yes. racialized as, right. And, and, us, you know, people on that side of the whole gender sex issue will say, uh, you know, people assigned yeah. X at birth, right. So they, they work that exactly. into the yeah. language. So they're already willing to do that. And they're already willing to kind of accept uh, or, or, or reject the categories and kind of behave and speak and think as though the categories are uh, false. I mean, I think they have it kind of backwards exactly. because there is a biological basis for, for sex. You know, gender identity is a whole other thing. But it's interesting, you know, I've said it before and I think you saw, Melissa, I've said it before. It's interesting that we we're obsessed with binaries. We want strict binaries, you know, black, white. Racist, anti-racist, but the one thing that is binary, ninety-nine point ninety-nine percent of the time, yeah. or whatever it actually is, that's where we want the spectrum and fluidity. And it's it's just really weird. Yeah, that we've got to flip. I in think that way. that's a really um, powerful observation because people who lean right. So my work is is intentionally nonpartisan, but in that way, I can recognize, I think, more clearly what happens on both sides of the spectrum, if you will. So people who lean right lean into racelessness, the theory of racelessness, because they are often aspiring to some kind of colorblindness. This gives them the toolkit needed to examine in a more generative way the history of racism and how racism exists today in a way that doesn't make them feel icky, right? And so they really lean into this. Like I hear from right-leaning people, so conservatives and Republicans, nonstop. On the other side of the spectrum, people who lean left should more readily um, access and lean into theory of racistness because if they stay long enough to hear how this isn't what they're afraid it is, which is in some way, shape, or form, a different form of racism, which is often the fear, um, then they recognize the sort of radicalness of what I'm advocating. They recognize how because people who lean right can find a space in theory of racistness work without perpetuating racism, they recognize the power that that has. Because ultimately, if we're focusing hard on either side of the spectrum, then we're missing ginormous opportunities to do work together, which to me is like, the actual healing and unification and reconciliation that we all will benefit from. And it's just a matter of, I have remained convinced, it's just a matter of having the tools and the resources, the, the, the support um, of people who, who want this kind of transformation to happen. And I think even just on the ground level, we are closer than we are fooled into thinking, because again, I, I, I really see this resonates with a lot of people who lean right and people who lean left readily adopt it. And they often bring up the analogy of gender. Um, so, yeah, and to me, that's a win win. There are some people who, 
you know, would want it to be more partisan maybe, but, um, but I think it's to all of our benefits that it's not people on anywhere can identify with this. I'd love for you to dig in a little bit more about the, the concern that you mentioned on the left, that this is just another form of racism, because immediately when you said that people on the right are, are seem to be more willing to adopt this, my thought was, oh, you know, the, the, the cynical take on that is, yeah, of course they want to obscure racism and they want to obscure these categories so that they can continue to benefit from it without right. having there be a way to address it. Right. That yeah. I know that people think that way. And I know that that's a perspective people have. Um, and I think, you know, of course it can be true. And I, I, I know people for whom it's true, but I also know people who genuinely just want to be rid of these things because they're holding us back. They feel it's holding us back. And I agree with that. So uh, yeah. What do you, th- what do you think? Yeah. What's, what's going on? Yes. Thank you for concern? letting me expand on this. So when I say more, when I say right-leaning people tend to lean into this more, what I'm saying, what I'm comparing it to is, is the thing being called CRT, right? So compared to the other ways of doing uh, okay. anti-racism, people who lean right lean into theory of racistness more than they do any of the other options that have been afforded to them. And, and so in that way, I think it's actually pretty, pretty even um, the engagement with that. But for the for the resistance that I do receive from people who lean left, I find that it stems. In a lot of ways, it stems. um, It comes down to the emotional aspect of this, because, you know, some people can't really if we're thinking just logically, it almost seems like a given. Right. It almost seems like a no brainer in some ways. But because there are there's a heart (laughs) that is at play here that's challenging for people to grapple with and work through and come to a different conclusion on their own. But I find again, that people readily do that work and it's overwhelming. It brings tears to my eyes. Sometimes when I hear my students talk from a really a place of authenticity in ways that coming into my classes or coming into my workshops, they they're not thinking in that way at all. Um, So it is possible, but I, I would say it's more, emotional work for people who lean left. And that's largely because the the way racism has operated in in this country, the belief in race has been taken and adopted as a way to resist that thing, right? To resist the the nefariousness of racism. And part of that resistance is writing everything positive into your own category of race in rejection of the racist ways people are, might view you. And, you know, that has helped sustain and helped a lot of generations thrive in otherwise precarious circumstances. But I think we have to and we have to honor that and respect that and see that for what it is. And then we can help people recognize how racelessness should no longer be packaged and conflated with whiteness, that racistness is for all of us, that we all deserve to be outside of racism. And that when we do that for ourselves, we are lighter. We really are freer. We have a clear understanding of how this thing called culture works. We have a clear understanding of our position in our respective societies and that we all benefit. And I I don't know, I, 
I've been really fortunate. I don't know if I've unlocked some magical code or something, but people, regardless of how they identify politically, are finding a place in theory of racistness. And it's interesting to see the different ways they articulate the thing. But certainly there are people who are going to fear that, you know, I'm, I secretly hate myself as a person who's racialized as black in American society. I secretly hate, hate myself and I'm trying to be white. But it's easy for me to see through that and what causes that. And that's because whiteness has been conflated with racelessness. It's been locked together. And if we can help people to the other side of that, then we'll be all right. Also, I just want to make one last note that part of what gives me hope is for me, it's not an all or nothing. So we don't need 100 percent of every person in this country to agree or see the light. That's just not statistically possible, first of all, because human beings will never agree 100% on anything, much less this thing. But I think even at a starting point, we've probably got the statistical majority. They just need the, the, the research and the toolkit and the knowledge to support how they're thinking. And um, if we get the statistical majority of people to see the light, then that's when the, the fabric of the society starts to shift from feeling like this is so entrenched that we can't get outside of it to unentrenching it, if that's a word. Mm. Detrenching is <laughs> filling in the trench. There it is. Maybe that's that's the right <laughs> lingo. <laughs> so, yeah, speaking of that, I wanted to, to jump into this kind of optimistic note, actually, because it seems like a problem. And I was about to ask you kind of, I was about to ask you this in, in a kind of framing of it as a problem, but you just made me think it's actually better than we think it is. You know, the, the statistical majority I think is actually bigger than we even think. And the reason for, for it, the reason for that kind of obscurity of that, the true number of people who are actually with the program is because of conflation, the conflation of the idea of race with things like culture and community and ethnicity and that kind of sense of camaraderie and a shared history, right? And I think that that's a lot of the pushback that you've gotten um, that I've seen. You know, there are people who who say, you know, I'm I'm black and I'm proud and black is beautiful. And, you know, they associate these things with being black, these cultural things, these these ethnic things, these kind of regional things these linguistic things, these kind of, you know, just interpersonal things, these ways of being with this category. And I, I feel like part of the challenge is, is getting them to recognize that all of those things are, they exist independent of that category and that they're actually not served at all by that category. So how do you go about approaching that? Because I've seen you do it and it's really interesting to see people kind of deal with what you're saying yeah so i mean it it harkens back to when i was talking about my own journey and my own resistance to my own ideas which makes me sound like smeagol or something like ah my precious like <laughs> um, so yeah it's it's one of those things where out of the gate i talk about racism exists otherwise theory of racistness as a business and theory of racistness as a theory wouldn't exist. Right. Um, and in the core tenets, I talk about racism as though it exists. And so I think for me, 
part of the resistance and part of being proactive is you have to understand how messaging, how to message appropriately so that you keep the door open for as many people as possible. So right out the gate, racism exists. Okay, check. <laughs> right. It's existed. History. You know, when you say racism exists, you're not defining racism in the way that modern academia does with power and prejudice. You are actually defining it as prejudice, just based on on this category called race. Is that how you're defining racism? So racism for me, I, I don't know if many academics, certainly not all academics, define it in that way. I think that's more of a mainstream, the masses way of doing it. But that's just my perspective being in academia. When I think of Ibram X. Kendi, who defines racism, he, he'll say something to the effect of racism is the belief in the superiority or inferiority of any racial group compared to another racial group. That's his definition. And that's the definition I've heard most widely accepted. What I'm saying is his definition still upholds and reifies this idea that there are racial groups, that there, that, that, that there are different groups of people who can be categorized into race and how I conceive of racism in that racism often camouflages itself as this thing that gets interpreted into race, I see race as the hierarchy itself. So to my mind, Kendi's definition or similar definitions are redundant because they're talking about the belief in the inferiority or superiority. But by my analysis, race is itself the hierarchy inferior and superior, right? So my definition of racism has come to be the belief in race because belief in race is the belief in the hierarchy. Um, and, but then I also added and the act of racialization because I think in the sense that what a person believes becomes beside the, the fact if they're not actively doing something with the belief um, and that's page from Barbara and Karen Fields' book, Racecraft, that Angel was referencing earlier. They talk about racism requires an action. And so I, I, um, I, I agree with that. So for me, racism includes a belief in race as biological or construction and the act of racializing oneself or other people. Which then means that almost everyone in the United States is racist. Which I can say, which I can say I with say. a smile on my face, <laughs> because for me, I just, I have compassion for the fact that regardless of how one defines racism, we learn racism. We're not born racist. We're not born seeing these phenotypical differences and automatically presuming a hierarchy. We learn it in as much as human beings are wired to categorize. It is, I think, a false assertion to say that we're born to see, you know, you're darker than me or you're lighter than me and therefore you're less than or you're greater than. I think that that is false. Um, and our evidence of that is if we look at our, our young people, if we look at children and how they interact with people before we teach them racism. And so now, of course, I've forgotten the initial question that Angel asked because I was defining it's about uh, uh, detaching the concept of race. No, that's a great question, Melissa. That was really good to to highlight. But yeah, the, my question was about 
how you show people that yes. um, yes. ethnicity is not connected to race and that community and culture are not race, yeah. even if so, they conflate them. Uh, this goes back to probably why I have so much hope in humanity. It seems like when you just teach people <laughs> the history of the concept of race and you, you dig into the history of racism, it's... You can't you can dispute the evidence, but it's really hard for people to dispute the evidence. And so they come to see the difference for themselves, which I think is is honestly the best way to educate people. Right. To have a sort of um, central overarching question Mm. that you put on the table that maybe you're not encouraged to even think about, like, what is racism and, and or what is race? And now let's explore history, let's explore literature, let's explore media, um, let's explore contemporary instances when race pops up, and let's see if we can translate race. And what ends up happening is, my friend calls this the race translator, people begin to translate race into what they mean. And in (laughs) the American context, many people translate Black as it pertains to Black American or Black even by itself. Many African-Americans will tell you, well, I see that as my ethnicity because I can't say specifically from where in Africa I I derive, right, because of the Middle Passage. And so Black is my ethnicity. And it's really interesting to have people and help walk people down the path of questioning what does that mean then? And what does it mean to use a word that comes from racism? that was used to justify enslavement and Jim Crow and all the things. And now we're taking it, we're saying, we're going to keep it because it's our ethnicity, right? Is there no other way to think of ourselves that can help us transcend racism in in ways that we deserve for ourselves individually and that the nation would benefit from? And once you start going down that path and helping people Mm -hmm. think about, okay, So if I view black as an ethnicity and I don't really view it as race, what does that mean? Is there an alternative language? Um, What does it mean to be culturally black? What is that saying? And if we're tying black culture with black ethnicity, then that means that people I would racialize as black don't all fit into the black culture. And like, what does that mean? Is there a better, more efficient way to talk about that thing? Um, And people, I think part of the benefit of helping people just asking the questions, right. And then helping people come up with the answers themselves through exploration of different texts um, and different podcasts and media sources, then they almost inevitably conclude for themselves, which is the key part. Huh? Yeah. There's probably like, I need to get outside of this. (laughs) I need to get outside of this language that comes from racism Mm -hmm. primarily, at least in the context of the U S these are the reasons why I, I want to get away from this and outside of this. And it's okay to not have all the answers too, right? Like it's okay to still be mulling over, well, what's the solution or what's a diff- what's a better way to think of ethnicity or what's a better way to think about this. It's okay. It's okay to not have all of the answers at this stage, because the fact that we've even gotten this far for ourselves is, you know, progress enough because so many people don't ever get to this point, right? So I find that to be the best strategy and the best way to help people along. And that's also why I'm kind of like a broken record when I say, for me, it's not about 
persuasion. It's not about convincing. Just I'm just sharing information, sharing my ideas, sharing resources, bibliographies, you know, and people find it compelling, which is just a happy side of <laughs> it's a happy side effect. It's a happy outcome. Um, but that's not like my intent going into a space. Like I've got to tell people how to think because I'm right. No, I think that's where we get tripped up more often than not. For me, it's about really honoring and recognizing where people are. They're going to be at different places and then giving them alternatives, giving them other information and letting their own minds do the thing. Beautiful, Sheena. So we have a final question that we ask all our guests and I feel like this entire conversation has been the answer to the question. So, but maybe, maybe it'll still pull something really beautiful out of you. Um, our, our focus here at FAIR is pro-human alternatives to the issues like all the issues we've been talking about. Um, so our question to you is, what does being pro-human mean to you? And how can everyday people listening to this who maybe don't have a podcast or who don't necessarily write articles for publications, how can they adopt a pro-human approach to these issues in their day-to-day life? Hmm. One of the first things that came to mind as you were finishing the question was your, um, I think it's your bio on Twitter that we're all first, be kind, we're all first drafts or something to that effect. When I think about humanity, when I think about humanness, and when I hear pro-human, I really think something along those lines. I, th- I think about how we are all imperfect and we are all beautiful with very few exceptions. And that part of our beauty comes from the fact that we don't all have the answers. We don't all agree on the same things. We should probably shouldn't all agree on the same things. That to me is part of the beauty of us. And if we can get to a place of being more motivated by love and and less motivated by hate and anger and disdain for uh, people that we think we disagree with, then I know that we can really open the door to future making that we have a hard time imagining coming to fruition because of how we currently see ourselves operating. So from my view, pro-human means loving oneself unconditionally and extending that same love to other people. That's it. That's perfect. Dr. Sheena Mason, thank you so much for joining us on Fair Perspectives. Thank you for having me, Melissa and Angel. This has been fun. Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our substack at fairforall.substack.com. And tune in to Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again. And see you next time.